Amen. We'll pick up in Luke chapter 6. So if you have your copy of Scripture, if you'll open up to the 6th chapter of Luke, where we have been for uh, the last three weeks. This is part 4 in the series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, you'll find your place on page 1187 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Be uh, very helpful for you to follow along as we uh, go through our passage this morning. Just by way of uh, reminder, as we wait for the choir to come around and enter with us, uh, the, the Lord here is giving us a blueprint of life in the kingdom. That when these words uh, that we so often call the Sermon on the Mount come out of the mouth of Jesus, they come in the most radical of all fashion. They come turning the world as it was known upside down. These statements that consist of this message, this sermon, are truly the most uncommon of all words. They are completely against what we would naturally do or think. And so Jesus uh, begins in the first six verses, in verses 20 through 26, by focusing on the way we should see ourselves and who we are, where he says things like, Blessed are you when you are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, We don't like to think of ourselves as poor in spirit, but Jesus says that's when you're blessed. He goes on to say, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you. And that will be a very important uh, concept to have in your mind as we move into our passage this morning, this concept of people excluding us. And then he transitions in verse 27 as, and he begins to focus on the way we need to see and interact with others. And so that's sort of where we left off last week. We talked about loving our enemies two weeks ago. And then last week we put the next piece of the puzzle on and we talked about the issue of forgiveness. That is impossible to love those who would be classified as our enemies apart from forgiving them. And this week has been such an encouragement and a blessing to me as uh, I have spoken with so many of you. I've received emails and phone calls, testimonies of how forgiveness has permeated your families, how you have uh, went and reconciled with people in your lives this week. And it's just so encouraging to see the power of God's forgiveness working in our body. And I pray that it would continue to do so. And so this morning as we turn to verses 37 and following, I want you to understand that God here is clearly outlining a lifestyle that is to be lived by believers that makes the gospel believable to outsiders. That when you and I apply the principles of the Sermon on the Mount into our own lives, it not only has an unbelievable and a drastic effect on us and our own lives, but the outside world begins to view us and see the gospel, more importantly, in the way in which it was meant to be seen. And this is where we will pick up this morning on just a very controversial statement and one that has been so utterly and completely misused misrepresented, misquoted. I have heard probably this verse used out of context as much or more than any other passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. And so this morning, my prayer is that God will 
give us an opportunity to see clearly what it is he is communicating through these passages. So let's pray and then we'll read. Let's pray together. Father, we come now before your word. And Lord, we acknowledge that this is your word, God, spoken to your people. And Father, I pray right now, Lord, that you would use my mouth as a vessel to bring clarity, that I may communicate the truth of what you intend to be heard here this morning, God. I pray against the temptation of craftiness, Lord, of any man-centered uh, power or strength, Lord, but God, it is in our weakness that your strength is made perfect. And so, Father, we come empty this morning, Father, to be filled by you and you alone. Now, Lord, will you empower this spirit to do in our lives what it was intended to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 6, let's begin reading in verse 37. You ever heard this before? Judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven of you. Verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 39. And then Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, Can a blind, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not perceive the plank in your own eye? For how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. So as we begin this passage, we have to deal with this statement, judge not lest you be judged. And first, what I'd like us to see this morning is the priority of people in the kingdom. Jesus begins this section by really giving us this amazing blueprint of human relationships. And the reason why this particular statement has caused so much trouble over the course of time... This judge not lest you be judged has caused problems within the church. My goodness gracious, we will uh, see situations and circumstances where people, Christians, will use this passage of Scripture to um, deny the fact that they're in sin or to somehow, you know, just... Uh, there's whole congregations and churches and movements and denominations of people who use this passage of Scripture as sort of a way of life in church. Basically, anything goes. You can do anything you want to do as a believer. You're saved by grace, and then you can just live it up. And if anybody has any problem with that, you simply look at them and say, well, judge not, lest you be judged. Jesus says, don't judge. So who are you to judge me? So I can just live my life any way I want to and do anything I want to do. That's just ridiculous. I mean, we know that. We know that's not what Jesus intended here. I mean, how many times in the New Testament are we commanded to judge? And we'll get to some of those scriptures. But honestly, we do not... This this statement is not intended as an excuse for sin. But listen, not only that, think of the pain that has been caused by Christians to other people by misusing this very thing. In other words, 
Think about the people. Maybe you're here this morning and you're new to church and you're just sort of checking this whole thing out and you've come in here and you could probably come up and give us a testimony about how you've been wounded by religious people who have judged you in the past. Because listen, when, when you, when somebody judges you, it is an amazingly personal, painful experience. I mean, we've all experienced that, that pain. But it's a problem even within the church in the context of, I've been in situations in churches where I have been judged, and listen, it, it's painful. It's harsh. I can remember one time in particular, really my, uh, the, my ultimate experience of being judged in the church. I mean, since this is the only church I've ever been a member of, amen, then, you know, and you people aren't judgmental, then, you know, I don't have any real experiences of, of being judged here because when I showed up here, I mean, I look like a freak and you love me anyway and that was great and I'm still here, so we're good. But outside the church, man, I've had problems. One time, I got invited to a, a youth rally at another church, another denomination, and so I'm... You know, I got a personal invitation to bring our teenagers to go, and I thought, well, well, amen. I want to be a, I want to be a blessing. I want to be a, a part. And you know, I had a little bit of relationship with this church, so I load up our students in our bus, and we head down there, and we get there. And you know the feeling. You walk into the church, and the first thing I realize is everybody's wearing a tie and a dress, but us. And I'm thinking. It's a youth rally, right? And it's like showing up to uh, a masquerade party in costume, and it's really not a costume party. And there we are. So we go in, and I'm trying to make the best of it, and we sit down, and so we're kind of in the middle of the sanctuary, and so there's all the, you know, formally dressed people around us. And, you know, I'm thinking, we'll get through this. And then the the... Speaker gets up and begins to just berate anyone who would dress in a casual manner, any, any female who would wear pants and worse than that, shorts. And I'm looking down the aisle at all our teenage girls in shorts and pants. Then he starts just railing off on anybody who would wear makeup and anybody who would have hair a certain way and all. The, and I'm just sitting there and I want to die. I mean, what do I do? I'm thinking, oh, this is horrible. And as soon as it was over, we couldn't have got out of there fast. I mean, we were gone. And here's the thing. The whole way home, I'm telling the students, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I had no idea that was going to happen. And you know why that's so painful? It's because you don't get the opportunity to defend yourself. You see, the problem with being judged is you, you're judged for something, whether it's on the outside or the inside, as if it's just out there, and you don't get the chance to stand up and go, well, I own a suit. If you'd have told me, I would have wore one. You know, if I, if I would have known this, I mean, we, we didn't know, but that, that, they don't, you don't get that chance. And so if you've been judged, you know that part of the pain in that is that people just come to their own conclusions about you and you get no defense. You've just been judged or condemned. And it is painful. Churches are notorious for judging people because they're different from them. Now, here's the thing. Isn't that exactly the opposite of what ought to be? In other words... 
Am I the only one who wonders sometimes as I'm driving up and down the road? I said this a couple Sunday nights ago. I got a problem. I hate so many church marquees. I mean, who's writing this stuff? It drives me crazy. The dumb things that churches put on their marquee. Because the thing about it is, is I try to think of it through the eyes of someone who's not a believer. You see, I know what they mean, but when the church marquee says, well, you think it's hot here? Really? In other words, is anyone driving down the road, you know, drinking a Budweiser and sees that and goes, I think I better go to church Sunday. No, they're not. All the Christian people are going, right, amen, that's right, hell's going to be hot, uh-huh, sure. Well, I mean, really. It drives me crazy. You drive by a church and there's a long list of qualifications to be in the church. In other words, if you're not... Listen, here's my problem. I'm glad. I'm very happy that certain churches have decided on all the different things in advance. You know, that you got to have the exact same right copy of Scripture printed in the right year and that you got all the right stuff and everything's got to, you know, and it says then we're fundamental, independent, premillennial. And I'm thinking to myself, here's the deal. Who, what lost person is coming down the road and says, Honey, they're premillennial. That's where we need to go. I mean, I understand what they're saying, obviously, but the point is, who are they saying it to? Shouldn't that sign be on the inside of the church? I mean, aren't we about as churches, people out there making the gospel look like the gospel ought to look? It is good news, by the way. But you see, this issue of, of judging, it's just so out of, it's just so tangled around that we know Jesus isn't saying that we never should judge. We know that's not true. But yet at the same time, he's obviously addressing someone. So when he says, do not judge, who is he talking to? What is the context that he is speaking in? Well, he's talking about our enemies. And so he's, he's talking in the context of us being persecuted for our faith by people who are outside of the faith, and He's telling us not to judge. Jesus is not saying here, never form an opinion about others. That's not what He's saying. He's not saying that there aren't people around us with issues that need to be dealt with or addressed. He's not saying that we shouldn't keep each other accountable by any means. That's why later on in verses 43 through 45, Jesus is going to talk about a, a tree is known by its fruit. In other words, in the same sermon, he gives us a clear indication of how to tell who is in the kingdom and who is out of the kingdom. So clearly there's a delineation. So we are to know who's a believer and who's not. So this issue of judging is about the, our enemies. It's about those outside the kingdom. See, here's what he's saying. He's saying, resist the tendency to criticize and find fault with our enemies. To criticize and find fault, to, to show condemnation, to belittle people, to, to, to be hostile and bitter you see, we all know that there are just those certain individuals 
I mean, Jesus is, is there and he's talking and there's Pharisees. And what is their sin? Their sin is that they have added to that they, they are following all these man developed rules. They've made up all these things that are about man that are not in the Bible. And so you have to do certain things. Does this sound familiar in the context of religion in our day? That there's all these things that churches are fussing and arguing about that are not even in the Bible. You see, it's the same situation. And here's the thing. How, how do we oftentimes, how do we oftentimes judge people? Well, here's, here's the subtle sneaky way. See, we all know the, the bad judgment. Well, what about the sneaky ways? We judge people by gossiping. You see, when we gossip about people, we do so, or we might say, you know, bless their heart, we need to pray for them, they've got issues. But what we really mean is let's just condemn them or bring them down so that we feel better or look better. You see, that's judgment. Gossiping is judging. And, and when we gossip... What we do is we illustrate that there's some pride issue in our life. There's some insecurity issue in our life that, you know, we have the wrong motivation. But Jesus isn't saying that we're to to ignore or overlook or keep quiet. I mean, obviously, we're to speak the truth in love over and over. He commands us in John 7. He says this, judge not according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You see? So someone might say, well, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. No, it's a contradiction in your understanding because you don't realize the context of which Jesus is speaking. You see, so many times there's that person roaming around in a church that has a Ph.D. in criticism, graduated from the University of Bitterness, and all they want to do is be ornery and angry and everything that happens they got a problem with and it's always negative all the time and here's the thing how many people do you think know them and say i I think this jesus thing is something i need to check into nobody zero in other words they are a gospel repellent when you are critical and negative and condemning you repel people from the gospel And this is what Jesus is speaking about. See, you you never, by being judgmental, draw anyone to Christ. Never. You don't do that. And so as Jesus is giving instruction to us, as we deal with those who persecute us, as we deal with the Pharisees and the legalists and all the circumstances and situations around us, we need to understand there is a difference between the way that we act towards and with our brothers and sisters in Christ and towards and with those who are outside the body of Christ. You see, the simple understanding is this. So many times we as believers get frustrated with the lost world because they act lost. That's like beating your dog for barking. It's a dog. That's what they do. In other words, listen. We shouldn't be astonished. We, we should, you should not watch the news and be astonished. You should not. It's just, it's, you should be sad. You should be heartbroken. You should be grieved. But astonished? No. Read the Bible. It's getting worse. It's going to keep getting worse. It's not going to get better until Christ returns. That's how lost people act. But that's not how we act in here towards each other. So this double-edged sword of 
of, of judging. Jesus is drawing a clear line here that we need to understand how this works. Now notice as he continues in verse 37, he says, Condemn not that you shall not be condemned. Forgive and it will be forgiven. Now, Jesus is merely reminding us here of the world's faulty system. Remember earlier, starting in verse 32, when he was giving us this uh, sort of this balance between the way it is in the kingdom and the way it is in the world. And he said about the world's system, even sinners love those who love them. Right? Remember that? Verse 33, he said, If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that of you? For even sinners do the same. He says, For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. In other words, that's the system of the world. And he's saying, But, but my system is different. It's not the same. Don't assume a position that is not yours. You and I are not the ultimate judge. God is. God is the judge. Okay? Are we together on that? Because if we're not together on that, we're never going to move forward. God is the ultimate judge. So what are we to do? Are we to just walk around and turn a blind eye to everything that goes on around us? Well, no. Here's what we're to do. We're to judge them the way God judged us. Now think about that for a second. In other words, we're to be to them as Jesus is to us. We're to illustrate Christ. And how did that happen? Well, the Bible says that God demonstrates His love towards us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, notice how we were judged. Notice what happened to our transgressions. Notice how God dealt with our sins. Notice how God dealt with our all, all of the, the things that we did wrong, knowing when we did them they were wrong, while we were sinning, Christ died for us. In other words, to be, to be, have some, some understanding. As, as, as you begin to look at judge others, you need to be, realize the way that you've been judged. God's ultimately going to judge. He's going to take care of that. You don't need to worry or fret that God's somehow going to miss judgment. He's not going to miss it. Revelation 20. John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Now, just a little side note here. It's not really a good day when the earth and heaven just roll up and leave for the wrath of God. In other words, this is not a day where, where you know, everybody's just happy and joyful and rejoicing. No, this great white throne judgment, the earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them, the Bible says. And then I saw the dead, the great and the small. Everybody, the famous, the powerful, the little bitty homeless person, all the people, however they fit in, everyone's there, the great and the small, standing before God, and the books were open. And then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that was in it. Then death and Hades were delivered up, the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second and final death. Verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now that ought to not make you rejoice. That ought to not make you happy. That ought to break our hearts. The reality of ultimate judgment, if you get that and grasp that, it will allow you to see what Jesus is saying in the clear and right way. In other words, judgment is inevitable. It's coming. And the fact that those apart from Christ will face judgment ought to 
break our hearts. That day is going to be the most horrific, catastrophic event of all time. And because in that day, it's going to be too late. There's not going to be any excuses. There won't be any more time for any reasons about, well, I didn't know or I couldn't do this. It's over. You see, that's a that's a horrible, frightening reality. Not for me and you who are born again believers in Christ who know that we will not face that judgment. But for those out there, those in our families, those in our neighborhoods, those in our workplaces who do not know Christ, it ought to break our heart. You see, when your heart is broken over the reality of ultimate judgment, you will have a very different attitude towards your judgmental, self-righteous attitude towards others about how great you are at your religion. You see, it ought to break our hearts. Ultimate judgment is is real and it's coming. But praise be to God that every day that we get on this earth is an opportunity for you and me to be the examples of God's love, grace and mercy in the gospel. You see that there's time now. There may not be time tomorrow, but there's time now. And what we don't need to be doing is puffing ourselves up and going out there like we've got all the answers and they're all completely and utterly ignorant. No, we need to use this time to spread and share the gospel with a lost and dying world. Jesus is speaking urgently to His people. Listen, it's an unbelievable privilege and honor and an unbelievable responsibility that we've been given to be the ambassadors of the gospel in this world. Think about that. Think about that calling. Listen, it's not something you ask for. It's not something you can get around. There's no loophole in it. If you're saved, you are an ambassador. Jesus Christ died on the cross and was rose from the dead for the victory of sin in our lives. And you and I are the ambassadors of that act of unbelievable, outrageous grace and mercy. And the world oftentimes will see Christ through the lens of our attitudes and our speech and our actions, the way we love our enemies. Yes. Yes. There's no room for this condemning self-righteous judgment. No. There's no room. I do not want to stand before the Lord. I do not want to stand before the Lord and have to face Him realizing that that I, I said things out of pride and arrogance. That I hindered people. That I was a stumbling block to the gospel because, because I thought I had it all right. Or I thought I... Listen, that's not the issue. The issue is not I'm right and you're wrong. The issue is I'm saved and you're lost. Now, what can I do to help you get where I am? And it's certainly not judge and condemn and harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. So, you know, sometimes when we read texts like Revelation 20, we respond with things like, well, well, how can, how can a loving God send people to a hell like that? And the answer is, God doesn't send people to hell. Sin does. God doesn't send people to hell. I mean, if you're here this morning and you know that you're not saved, and you realize that you're apart from God, and you know in your heart that you've done things that you shouldn't do, and you know that there are, there are, there are sins. 
between you and the Heavenly Father who loved you and created you and knows everything about you, then isn't a better question to ask, why does He let you breathe His air? Why does He let you laugh? Why does He let you feel joy? Why does He allow you to love and to be loved by others around you? You see, none of those things you deserve and none of those things I deserve. But in other words, when we ask the right question, God, why would you do the things you do for me? You see, the reality is, number one, I'm just humble and poor in spirit before God. And number two, God is so good and so gracious to me, the sinner. Because He's a loving Heavenly Father who slaughtered His one and only Son. That we might have life and life more abundantly to experience this unconditional love of the Gospel. Then you know what? Here's my challenge for you. Can you give me one, just one good reason why you would leave this place this morning apart from the love that God offers to you through salvation? I'm sorry if the church has hurt you. I'm sorry if you've been wounded by being judged by others. But listen, the gospel is the good news. It's the good news that says no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter. Whosoever, whosoever will respond and come, receive His love, will be saved. Why? And yet the reality is is that not a Sunday passes and people walk in, sit and listen and go right out the door the same way they came. Can I just tell you this morning, if ever there was a day when I can promise you, you can come forward and receive Christ. And today more than any other day, I can promise you, you won't be judged. You won't be judged. Because we're all faced with the reality that, you know what? We we were right there with you. Right there with you. There's no difference between you and us but the grace of God. So you see this issue of judging and condemnation. It, It takes the reality that we are not the judge ultimately. And that when it comes to dealing with those outside, we're the ambassadors of that judge. And our job is to make the gospel glorious as it is intended to be. And so here's, here's really the only challenge for you, Michael Memorial. May it be the heart and prayer of each and every one of us that we might display the gospel as glorious in our lives as the world looks in at us. Because it, to do anything less is simply sin. It's wrong. It's, it's, it's heinous above all things. Notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. He says, For this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in Him for everlasting life. I love that passage of Scripture. So we see the priority of people in the kingdom. Number two, quickly, the, the priority of possessions in the kingdom. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 38. He says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, that measure it will be given back to you. Here's the, here's the short end of it. God rewards generosity. Little generosity results in little receiving. 
Now, listen closely, because there's a lot of confusion about this as well. This text is not saying that your human generosity is always rewarded in some human means back or in some multiplied fashion back. That this is not some I give and you give, God. That's not what this is. This is not I give to God so that God will give to me more in return. No, no. That's carnival theology. Carnival theology says, I give God $2, God gives me a little ring. I throw the little ring around the rubber ducky in the pond, and if it goes around the ducky, I get a five-foot stuffed giraffe. That's not how this works. This isn't some carnival theology thing that you see on TV where you're going to sow your seed and God's going to rain down blessing from heaven, and you know, you got to give this money, and you can put it on your credit card. Three easy payments. Listen, no. No. Burn your credit cards. That's not what this is. This is I give as God has given to me. That's what this is. The principle of giving is I give freely and with joy because God has given to me. Hence the the phrase, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. You see, that's just a a, a term that, that every... Every Israelite would understand when when you took your pot to go buy grain, then, you know, there were those people that you could trust and those people you wouldn't. And you'd bring your pot and they'd fill it up with grain. And so here's what they do. They just sort of pour some grain in there. You know how it is. You know, you go to the little, uh, you know, you go to eat at the food court in the mall and the person's putting the food in the thing. And, you know, you, you see them kind of scoop and you're like, get a little more, come on. And they just, and then they shake one out and then they put it on your plate. You know, like, you can't have that one. And you're thinking, come on, be generous. I'm hungry. I know that the look in my son's eye of, uh, please, I'm starving here. I'm dying. Look at me. I'm famished. And so here's the thing. But look, good measure. In other words, filled all the way to the top. Pressed down. So the grain is pressed in tight. So you press it down. And, oh, we can fit some more. So we put some more to get it to, to good measure. We shake it so that all the air bubbles are out of the grain so that it's completely filled with nothing but grain. And then when we're done, it's running over the sides. That's how God gives back. Now, here's the thing. As we give, God rewards supernaturally. That's how He rewards. In other words, it's not always in a human way. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But it doesn't, does it matter? If it's from God, does it matter? One of the things I most adore about God is His creativity. I love the fact that God is so creative. I love the fact that He's so unexpected and He uses unforeseen circumstances to be generous to me in my life and to remind me of His goodness and His grace towards me. Do you know what God's, one of God's favorite ways to give is through His people. And so as you're generous with your possessions, as you give, God will reward you good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Because it's the kind of God that He is. So we see the priority of people, the priority of possessions, and now we see the priority of perception in the kingdom. Last thing, verse 39. And He spoke a parable to them and He said, Can a blind man lead the blind Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. In other words, students become like their teachers. In other words, you and I need to choose carefully who we're going to follow. Because now think this through. You and I started this journey how? Blind. 
And so when you start blind and you're looking for a guide, you need to think very carefully about who this guide may be. And then once you receive sight and the gospel gives you sight, then you need to understand, well, who am I following? Who am I growing under? In other words, is Christ the master teacher of your life? Or are you following some blind guide? This is why it's so incredibly important to make sure. I tell people this all the time. I say, whatever you do, make sure that you plant your family. You know, in other words, we have so many families here that are, that are uh, touched by, that are in the military. And just this morning, as I was walking by, I saw Brother Wade and Tylee. You know, they're getting transferred. And I just put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Brother, I'm just trying to get over the fact that soon you're not going to be with us. And I just want him to know that, you know what, I'm not quite there yet. It still hurts in my heart that you're getting transferred. I'm going to miss you, man. But you know what, if I could say one thing to you, Wade, I would say, Brother, get your family in a solid church that teaches the Bible. Do not, don't go where it's the most comfortable or where it's the most enjoyable or where it's the best. Go where the Bible is taught because here's the deal. You are going to become like the ones who you sit under. And so you better make sure you're sitting under people who are teaching you correctly. Man, I preach this all the time to young people. Choose your friends carefully. But you know what? You, you got a problem with that too in here. I see it all the time in the lives of a grown adults. Let me, can I just give you friendship 101? This is just extra, okay? Free. Here's something you need to understand. When it comes to good friendships in your life, let me just give you two things to think about. Number one, I want you to think about a time in your life when you were in a ditch. In other words, you were away from the Lord. You were out of God's will. You were struggling and you were suffering. Here's the thing you need to ask yourself. When I was away from the Lord, who came to me and talked to me about my sin? And if it's nobody, you don't have any friends. And if it's one, two, three, they're your friends. And anybody who says they're your friend and they watched you walk off a cliff, that ain't the friend you need. That's number one. Number two, simple principle. Number two, because all of us struggle. I want people in my life who are honest with me and who love me. Because I know that I'm going to become like my teacher. I'm going to be influenced by the people who are around me. Number two. Number two. Do not stay in friendships over the lie of indebtedness. There are people in this room, you're in friendships you ought not be in, you know they're dragging you down, and if I were to ask you in a private setting, why are you friends with this person? I'm not asking you, why do you love them? I'm not, I know you love them, and maybe they're part of your church, or maybe you grew up, whatever, but here's what you would say, because... They did such and such or so and so for me. Or because they're... Listen, there's some indebtedness that you feel. That is an error. You should not be walking with blind guides because you feel indebted. I mean, how? think about the sense that that makes. Well, since... You did something for me at some point in the past. You know, you loaned me 50 bucks or you helped me on the side of the road or whatever. Since you did that, I'm going to reward you by walking off into the ditch with you. Don't do that. You need a good church. You need good friends. Listen, stop reading junk books. Oh, I could go on about this all morning. Listen, don't read junk. I'm talking about don't just go into Lifeway and think everything they sell is something you ought to read. It's not. 
Be careful. Listen, ask your Sunday school teacher, hey, what do you think about this book? Call me. I'll trust me. I'll tell you. I've seen more heretical, ridiculous, obnoxious, sinful books on the top of the Christian bestseller. I mean, I need a whole sermon series to cover that garbage. Don't read it. Read things that are written by people who know and love God, that are based on the Bible. There's lots of... If you don't think there's a lot of good books, come in my office. There's lots of them. And there's a lot of junk. Don't read it. Because there is a priority in perception. In other words, you, Jesus is saying, look in, see, see yourself here. See who you are. See where you're going. Who are you following? Where are you going? Who's leading you? Number four, there's a, pr- a priority of passion in the kingdom. He says this, verse 41, And why, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck from your eye when you yourself... Do not see the plank that is in your own eye. In other words, Jesus here is going to turn and put the microscope on motive. In this whole issue of judging and condemning, and this issue of how we're a blessing to others, and how we prioritize our possessions, He's looking at motive here, and He's saying, Now, look at verse 41. Just underline why. Here's what it says. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? That's a very important word. Why? Jesus wants to know why. So before you go and confront somebody, you need to ask the question, why am I going to talk to this person? Because if the answer is so that it makes me look more spiritual, so that it builds me up, because I really don't like them, and one time they hurt me in the past, and now i got a chance to get them back. Now that sounds kind of ridiculous, but it happens every day. What is the motive for wanting to go? What is the motive that you see this speck in your brother's eye? Why? Why? Are you genuinely brokenhearted because of the problem that they're facing? Is your desire above all things to see them reconciled and restored with God? Then you're ready to go. That's this issue of the plank. You see, the plank is your motive. The plank is you and me. Where are we? Who are we going to straighten out? Who are we going to talk to when we've got a problem in our own life? You see, when Jesus says, you hypocrite, first remove the plank. This word, plank, dakos in the Greek. This, You know what this word means? Beam. This is the word that is describes the beam that goes across the walls that supports the ceiling. So what Jesus is saying is that you are going to confront someone that has a twig in their eye and you have beam eye. You can't see anything. And so you're going in and you're like, hey, uh, I want to help you with this issue while you have a beam protruding from your eye. And Jesus is saying, no, no. I mean, look at the wording. It's simple. I don't know how we get this wrong. It's so easy. He says, first. Now, anytime the Bible or anyone else for that matter says first, it automatically means what? There's going to be a second. You see? Otherwise, he wouldn't say first. If there was only one thing, it would just be that. But no, there's another one. So first, there's an order here. First, we are to look inwardly at ourselves. First. Secondly, then we are to turn and help our brother with the speck. See, God is never, not here nor anywhere else, ignoring immorality in anyone. That's not the issue. The issue is, is that before we jump on the horse and ride off in the moral police cavalry... 
We need to make sure that we have looked at our own lives and that we're not some hypocrite with a beam in our eye going around checking the sawdust in other people's eyes. That's the context. You see, that it's so sad. It's so sad to watch lost people act foolishly. But it's even more sad to watch saved people act self-righteously. I mean, that's the greater tragedy. You see, the speck is real. Understand that. The speck and the beam are real. They're real. Your brother and my brother has a real problem and they need help with it. There's a speck in their eye. And Jesus doesn't call, call it a speck because it's a little in, insignificant problem. He calls it a speck based on the uh, comparison between the problem and the ability or the knowledge of the outsider's spiritual understanding. Does that make sense? That's why it's a speck. Do you know why it's a beam in your eye and a beam in my eye? Because we ought to know better. You see? So it, it could be the same problem if me and him have the exact same problem in our life. It's still a speck in his eye outside and it's a beam in my eye inside because I ought to know better. That's why it's a beam. The greatest of all sins is self-righteousness. It totally negates the beauty of the gospel. The reason that we so often have a plank in our eye is because we of all people ought to know better. We have the gift of God's Word right before us. And what we do is we follow blind guides. We read foolish books. We have friendships with people that tear us down. We take lightly things like fellowshipping in a local church and we just go wherever we're comfortable. And here's the thing. And then we wonder why we have so many Christians walking around judging everybody and being a stumbling block to the gospel. It's because... You're following a blind guide and you will, Jesus said, become just like your teacher. Just like him. He's surrounded by Pharisees, by people who have added things to the gospel, who have made all their rules and all their regulations part of knowing God. All this foolish nonsense that so many churches get caught up in. I had to write a... I had to write a response in seminary about an issue close to this issue. And I remember it sort of set off a little bit of a firestorm when I had to, you know, post it on a forum where everybody could read it. And I, so I wrote my response and I posted it. Man, that thing lit up like a Christmas tree. Because here's what I said. I said, listen, you know what? 72% of all the Southern Baptist churches in the state of Mississippi are in decline or plateaued. They're dying. They're dying. And, and God gave me the opportunity to travel around the state and see many of those churches. And you know what that did in my heart? First, it broke my heart. But secondly, it made me fall in love with my church. And I wrote in that response, I said, it made me thank God that every week I get to sit in a church and watch people be confronted and assaulted by the gospel and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Amen. And you know, here's the thing. All those churches, they preach the gospel. Every one of them, every one of those dying churches has, has a Bible just like this. Every one of them. So why are they dying? Why? More often than not, it's because they're fighting and bickering over things that are not even addressed in this book. And a lost and dying world has no time or patience for that. 
May it be said of us that we are a people committed to making the gospel look glorious to all those we come in contact with. Listen, this isn't about compromise. This isn't about, about easy believism. This is about the good news of the gospel that let your light so shine that they see your good work. See, if you're criticizing and condemning, nobody sees anything. Because if they see your good works, they'll glorify your God in heaven. May that be said of us. Listen, if you're here this morning, I don't know where you are, but I can tell you this. If you're apart from Christ, today would be a glorious day to receive the free gift of salvation. And I can promise you one thing. I can't promise you what's going to happen out there or in some other church or some other fellowship. But this place right here, they won't judge you, I can assure you, because they didn't judge me. And we won't judge you. We love you and we recognize that we walk right where you are. But for the grace of God, for the grace of God, he touched our lives and forgave us. And now we are his sons and daughters. And my prayer is that that would be true of you this morning. Maybe you need to come for baptism. Maybe you've just been afraid to come and stand because you're afraid people are going to judge you because you haven't been baptized. Listen, no. Maybe you want to join this fellowship and be part of it, but you've been a little bit fearful. Listen, today is your day to come. Come and receive Christ. Come for baptism. Come for prayer. Come to join this fellowship. But come. We won't judge you. We'll love you because we've been right where you are. We want the gospel to look glorious in our lives as we walk these dark and dying streets of the earth for every day that God gives us. And please, Lord, come quickly. Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, we, we come before you, Lord, in this time of invitation, God, and we ask you, we ask you, Lord, that you would do a work that only you could do here. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, thank you for assembling these people. Thank you there's not one person here this morning by accident. Now, God, would your purposes be made real in every life here? Give us the courage to respond to you for whatever our need may be. In Jesus' name, amen.